Alright, so like I said, uh, we are in the second part of this series entitled Hidden Christmas, and this morning we are looking at the life of Joseph. So Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this passage, I want to look at this story under two headings. Uh, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at the costs of Christmas, that's plural. So we're going to begin by looking at the costs of Christmas, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the benefits of Christmas. Right, so we're going to look at the costs, and then we're going to look at the benefits. Now, the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin by looking at the costs of Christmas. Now, when you hear the costs of Christmas, I don't know about you, but what comes to my mind when I hear about the costs of Christmas is I think about my bank account, right? And I think about my credit card statement. And I'm like, yeah, Christmas is expensive, brother, okay? I wish my, my daughters liked cheaper things, right? Like, it, it's a lot of money. So right, when you think of the cost of Christmas... I tend to think of money and bills and credit card statements. But what we're going to see this morning is that there is a greater cost to Christmas, that if you are truly going to believe and embrace the message of Christmas, there are major costs that you must be willing to incur if you are to take this journey with Jesus. And what we're going to see in this passage is that in the story of Joseph, there are two significant costs that he must be willing to incur in order to believe and embrace the Christmas message. The first thing that Joseph must be willing to give up is he must be willing to give up his reputation, his reputation. The second thing that Joseph must be willing to give up is he must be willing to give up control. So those are the two costs that he must give up, he must incur, and as a result, we must incur if we are going to truly embrace the story and message of Christmas. He must lose his reputation, and he must lose control. We're going to look at each one of those now. The first thing that he must give up is he must give up and lose his reputation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, part of the reason why Joseph has to lose his reputation in order to believe in Jesus is because of who he was. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible says that in choosing Jesus, he had to take, Joseph would have to take a blow to his reputation. It says here in the passage that he was a man who was faithful to the law. In other words, he was a faithful, law-abiding, God-honoring Jew. That's who Joseph was. In order to be known as that in that day, you had to be doing that from the day you were born. So this is a, a very significant reputation that he has created and established throughout the entirety of his life. And one of the things that he would have to give up in order to truly believe the gospel, embrace this Jesus, is he would have to incur the cost of giving up his reputation. He was a good, godly man, the Bible says. And one of the rare things about Joseph is that he's one of those few characters in the Bible that you never hear anything bad about him. Not one thing is ever said bad about Joseph. Not because he wasn't bad. He was a sinner, obviously. But the Bible just never says anything negative about him. And we see about, there's about four stories that you find about Joseph in the gospel narratives. And he wasn't actually talked about that much. Actually, Mary has a lot more written on her than Joseph has. So the first place we see Joseph is here in the passage that we're looking at, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. The, the next place where we see him is in the Gospel of Luke. Him and Mary bring Jesus to the temple and they present the baby to be dedicated. That's where you find the story of Simeon and the prophecy that he gives them. And we'll be looking at that story 
next week. But so that's the second time we see Joseph. Then you fast forward a little bit. And in Matthew chapter two, so the next chapter in this book that we're looking at, he, he not only is willing to lose his reputation, he's actually willing to give up his life because we see that their lives are in danger so much so that him, Mary and, jo and Jesus have to escape to Egypt because Herod was killing all the infants. Second time we hear about him. And then the third and final time that we hear about Joseph in the entire gospel narrative is when Jesus is 12 years old and they go back to Jerusalem. And when they're in Jerusalem, it says that Jesus stays behind. Mary and Joseph leave with the family. They find out he's missing, so they come back to find him. And even in that story, you don't actually hear Joseph say anything. The only person who speaks is Jesus and Mary. That's the last time we hear of Joseph in the entire Bible. But here's what's fascinating. What a lot of scholars and commentators say is that somewhere between Jesus being 12 and Jesus being 30, Joseph died. And the reason why we know that is because there are two... Let me say this. At, at 30 is when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, his public ministry. Many scholars argue that by that time, Joseph was already gone. He had already passed for a couple reasons. One, because uh, many times the male in those marriages would be older than the female. So there was a good chance he was 10, 15 years older than Mary, right? But it wasn't only because of that. It was also because... There's two places in the earthly ministry of Jesus where Joseph should have been and he's not. So there's a story that's told that Jesus is at Peter's house and he's preaching. And there's a great multitude of people inside the house, which actually when we went to Jerusalem, Lily and I, uh, to, not to, to Capernaum, we got to see the house of Peter. It's still there. And so Jesus is preaching in, in Peter's house. And, and um, there's such a crowd that his mother and his brothers and sisters can't get in. What many scholars say is that by that time, there's a good chance that Joseph was already dead because there's no way that a woman would be traveling by herself like that. So the fact that it was only Mary and her children means that he was probably gone already by then. But we know for a fact, that might have been him gone already, but we know for a fact he was gone by the time Jesus died because when Jesus is on the cross, he looks at John and he says, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And what commentators say is that there's no way Jesus would say something like that if she was still married because her husband would be the one that would protect her. So the fact that he gives Jesus to uh, Mary to John and John to Mary, it means that there's a good chance Joseph was already gone, Okay. So think about it. The Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about Joseph, and the little that it does tell us is all positive things. He was a good, godly, uh, law-abiding, uh, uh, God-honoring Jew. And so one of the things that he had to give up in order to believe Jesus, in order to embrace Jesus, is he had to give up his reputation. But listen, not only did he give up his reputation because of who he was, he also has to give up his reputation because of who he marries. Here's the thing about marriage. You know, marriage is a very significant thing in our culture. It's becoming less significant as time goes on. But in those days, marriage was a very important covenant and contract. And it was done very differently from how we do it, right? In our day, when you marry someone, you meet someone, and then you date that person for a, an extended period of time, and then you marry them. But in those days, it, that's not really how marriage worked. And many times, you were already uh, uh, married to someone even before you were out of teenage years. What would happen is your parents many times would choose the spouse for you, and those relationships were created either because they were close to the family relationally, or maybe it was a financial decision. But what many Jewish families would do is that they would take a girl, and they would take a, their, a boy, and, and they would marry them. They would promise them to one another. And the moment that that woman went through puberty, so that could be 12, 13, 14, she was married off. So there's a good chance that Mary was 13 years old when she got married, Okay. 
So, 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 so uh, Joseph and Mary clearly had some family connections because that's how they would have been, you know, uh, betrothed to one another. And here's the thing about betrothal. Betrothal was such a serious matter that once you were betrothed, the only difference between being married and betrothed is that when you were, when the, it was that when you were, got married, you would consummate the marriage on the wedding night. That'd be the only difference. But technically, uh, in the eyes of the culture, you were already married by being betrothed. So much so that if you ever wanted to break away from the betrothal or the engagement, what we would call, you would actually have to divorce the person. You would have to go to court and actually physically divorce them like you would divorce someone you were married to. That's how serious betrothal was. And here's the thing about betrothal. Once you were betrothed to someone, if one of them cheated, there was a few things that, that would happen. Um, well, one of the first things that would happen, and I, I didn't find out this until I was studying this week, but when, when, a, when a family... Two families come together and say, hey, my son is going to marry your daughter. What would have to happen is the family of the groom would have to give a bride price to the family of the bride. And that money was given to them, essentially, or it could be money, it could be livestock, it could be property. But that bride price was given for two reasons. One, it was to pay the cost of the wedding, right? But two, it was an insurance policy. Here's what I mean. Just in case the boy, the, the man, got tired and didn't want to marry her, the family of the bride would keep that money as like, a, hey, here's what you get. Here's a, a cost for your, your, problem, your worries, you know, for your trouble. Okay. So it was either used to pay for the wedding or it was used as an insurance policy to pay the family off in case the groom didn't want to be married. Okay. But here's the other thing about betrothal. When you are betrothed, if someone cheated, it not only was, was the, the money lost, obviously the bride price lost, but, but the other thing was, the, whoever cheated, especially if it was the woman because of the patriarchal, patriarchal culture they were in, especially if it was the woman, here's what would end up happening. The, the, you would have to, uh, uh, essentially what would happen is the person would get divorced, right? You would have to file for divorce. But not only that, you had every right to publicly display in a, in a disgraceful way the person who cheated. And these weren't major, these weren't big towns. These were very small towns that these people lived in, okay? Very, very small towns. Actually, I heard this uh, a couple weeks ago that in the story where uh, Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem, I remember when I heard that, I thought, oh, that had to be like hundreds of kids. They're saying it was closer to 20 to 30 kids that died because of how small Bethlehem actually was in that time. Okay? So, so what you would do if someone cheated during that betrothal period is you would, you would display them publicly and you would, you would just cast shame on them and say, look what they did. And that person would either have to leave the town or forever live with that disgrace. Not only would you have to live with disgrace, but the person would also be destitute. And here's what I mean. Either party, but again, especially the man, if the woman cheated, he had every right, not just to, to, to like disgrace her, but he had every right to take all her inheritance and all her property, even though they never really got fully married. So she would be left with nothing. She would be left completely destitute. And then the last thing is there was death. And according to Leviticus, if someone cheated, even if it was during the betrothal period, whoever was cheated on had the right to kill the person who cheated. Okay? So this is a very major thing that happens in this story. So when Joseph decides to quietly divorce her, to quietly push her aside, he was actually doing her a major favor. He was showing her uh, a, an extreme amount of mercy by handling it the way he handles it. But then after he has the, the dream, the fact that he is willing to marry her shows that he was willing to give up his reputation, not just because of who he was, but because of who he was marrying. 
Think about that. From that moment on, can you imagine trying to explain that in that culture? You see, because we live in a Western culture that's all about the individual. So even if you have a family member, if your father or your grandfather or, your, or you have a, a cousin or a sibling who's a bad, evil person, our culture is so individualistic that you can just make your own path and create your own story, right? But in those days, that wasn't the case. The family, the, the, the group was more important than the individual. So whatever you did would have ramifications on your family, and whatever your family did would have ramifications on you. And so Joseph clearly grew up in a very God-honoring family because he was a God-honoring Jew. In order for him to marry Mary, he not only was giving up his own reputation, in many ways he was tarnishing his family's. He was taking everybody down with him. And imagine what that conversation would have been like. Remember, this is a small town, probably no more than 300 people. And so you, you, for the rest of your marriage, every time someone asks you, people do the math. They're like, wait, you got married on this day, but your kid is this old. And people know math, right? They knew math back then. Okay? So can you imagine how he explained it? So that like, people are like, okay, so explain it to me. Either she cheated on you or you had sex out of marriage. And his response was like, no, 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 no. Here's what actually happened, guys. Uh, 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 she, she had a baby because of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> They're like, sure, bro. <laughs> Keep telling yourself that one, man. So, so in order for him to embrace and, and to bring Jesus and Mary in, he had to be willing to give up his reputation. That is one of the costs that he was, must have been willing to incur in order to believe the Christmas message. And the same thing that's true with Joseph is true with you. Listen, here's what I need you to know this morning. One of the costs that you must be willing to incur if you are going to be someone who lives the gospel out, who believes the Christmas story to your core, is you have to be willing to give up your stellar reputation. It comes with the territory. And if, you, if, if you've been a Christian for a while and you haven't had to give up your stellar reputation, it probably means that you're not living out your faith the way you should. Think about it. When, when you come, let's say that you came to know Jesus later on in life, right? And you're in a workplace and you, you were in the workplace as a non-Christian, now you're in the workplace as a Christian. You step into that workplace and all of a sudden, after however many years you were there as a non-Christian, now you show up and you're not gossiping anymore. And, and you're not swearing anymore. You're not laughing at the same jokes anymore. You're not complaining about management anymore. And all your coworkers are like, what the heck happened to this guy? What, you think you're better than us now? Oh, I'm sorry, you found Jesus. Oh, okay. See, there's consequences to the gospel. There are costs that must be incurred if you are truly going to live out the gospel. And again, if that's never happened to you in your workplace, it's probably because you're not actually living out the gospel. Because what a lot of us do is we're Christians on Sunday and then we're pagans every other day. Okay? So in your workplace, things change. But it's not just in your workplace. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but trying to do parenting is already hard enough. Trying to do parenting as a Christian, and you have family members and neighbors and coworkers and people from your past, and they're like, wait, why are you raising your kid like that? What a dumb rule. And why would you not let them do this? And just let them be free. Let them explore. Let them express themselves. And so you're constantly dealing with being judged by other parents because you're not raising your kids the same way you were raising them before. Right? There, there's a consequence to this, guys. And don't even get me started on singleness. Listen, if you're a Christian here today and you are single and you are trying to do singleness in a way that honors Jesus, if you're not trying to do it in a way that honors Jesus, it's pretty easy. But if you're trying to do it in a way that honors Jesus, it is extremely hard. 
And people around you look at you and they're like, well, why wouldn't you date that guy or that girl? She's pretty, she's successful, and they have everything going for them. And you're like, no, no, I actually want to wait until marriage, and I actually want to marry someone who, who knows Jesus. And they're like, what? What is this, 1950? It's hard. There's a cost to this. And I'm sorry if, there's, if, if you've ever been told that there's not. There's a cost to trying to live out the gospel. And then the people who knew you, what they do is they, they treat you like you're going through a phase, right? Like maybe, maybe you, 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 this season you're coming to a family party or a family gathering and, and the family, I, I do this, I have this all the time with my family, right? And I can say this because none of them are here, okay? But I, I go to, I go to my, 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 the people I grew up with around the people I grew up with and, and they still to this day, they act like I died 12 years ago. And like, well, remember that one time when we did this? Remember that one time when you did that? Remember, my, and it's almost like I, I, I had stopped living when I became a Christian. And, and they, they all missed that guy. And, and, and to this day, I still hear like comments, well, maybe he'll get out of it. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll snap out of it sometime. Maybe he'll get a real job one day. Seriously. And that's how it is with a lot of you, right? You have family members or coworkers or neighbors who are like, oh, he's still going through the Christian phase. What a fanatic. But there's a cost to this, guys. You got to read the fine print. If you're going to live out the gospel, if you're going to embrace the Christmas message, if you're going to bring it into the core of your person, it has implications. It has ramifications. And there are costs that you must be willing to incur. That is what this passage is saying to us. That is what the life of Joseph is, is saying to us. And then what's crazy is, let's say someone gets curious enough to ask you why you're different. You're like, okay, here's what I believe. I believe that we're sinners and God showed up as an infant and died on a cross. And they're like, what? We're sinners? We're Americans. We're great. <laughs> what do you mean we're sinners? There's nothing wrong with me. And how dare you say there is? Just like Joseph trying to explain that Mary was, con was conceived through the Holy Spirit of the baby, it, it would be just as, the, the, listen, the gospel message is just as unbelievable today as it was back then. But if, you go, if you're going to try to live for Jesus, if you're going to embrace the message, there is a cost that must be incurred. And one of those costs is you must be willing to give up your reputation. But you know the other thing you must be willing to give up? It's not just your reputation. You must also be willing to give up control. Okay. Here's what I mean by this. I need you to follow with me here. One of the things that would happen back then, and I've actually, I, was, I would argue that for some of us, giving up control is a lot harder than giving, us, giving up our reputation, okay? But here, maybe because your reputation was already bad to begin with, but, but that's another sermon for another day. But, but the second thing, the second cost that must be incurred if you are going to live a life that honors God is you must be willing to give up control. And here's what I mean by this. When you look at the story, one of the things that uh, happens, and to us it doesn't really mean much, but would have been very significant to any of the original readers of this passage, is that Joseph is not allowed to name his son. Now, to us that doesn't really mean much, but in those days, the, the head of the household always named their child. And the, name was in, the naming process was important for two reasons. It was important because it signified it, it was a display of his authority and, and power over the child. But it was also important because in biblical times, the name that you chose for your child meant a lot, right? Because in our day, you know, I don't even, I think, I forgot what my name means, but it, my name doesn't matter. It doesn't really affect me. But in those days, the name that you chose, you chose for your child almost became the trajectory for their life. It, it defined them. 
And people knew the meaning of the name and would always think about that whenever they interacted with them. So the name was very important. You were in many ways uh, uh, prophesying over your child by giving them the name that you gave them. But what's so crazy is that in this uh, a story, Joseph has to, in order to embrace the gospel, in order to embrace the Christmas message, Joseph has to give up control. He gives up control over this child because he is not allowed to name Jesus. The angel says, listen, you can't name him. You can't name him. You know why? Because he already has a name. You can't name him because he comes pre-named. And his name is Jesus. So the moment Joseph embraces this promise, the moment he, he embraces Christmas, one of the costs that he must incur is he must be willing to give up control. Listen, the reason why he couldn't name Jesus is because Jesus already had a name. Jesus Christ is the only infant ever born in human history that from the moment he was born was older than his parents. He was the man of the house at two months old. Okay? He probably, when he left the house, he was like, hey, you're, you're the man of the house now, Dad. You know? Like, that's why they couldn't name him. Because Jesus already had a name. And his name was Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. In other words, his name was his calling. His name was his mission. His job was to come and save the world from their sin. So he doesn't name Jesus because Jesus already had a name. But the other reason why he doesn't name Jesus is because Jesus came to name him. Okay? Follow with me here. Jesus doesn't get named. Jesus comes to do the naming. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't come for you to give him an identity, identity. He comes to give you an identity. You need to understand that as you, as you reflect on this. And so if you're sitting here today and you're considering Christianity, one of the things that you have to understand is that if you uh, embrace the Christmas message, the gospel message, one of the costs you have to incur is that you don't name Jesus. Jesus names you. You don't give him an identity. He gives you an identity. See, but for a lot of us, that's a problem, though, because what a lot of us want is we want a conditional Christianity. You know what conditional Christianity is? Christi conditional Christianity is I want Jesus, but. I love Jesus, but. Hey, Jesus, you can come do something about this part of my life, but don't touch this part of my life. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were talking about sand and, and rock. You, 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 hey, Jesus, uh, um, um, I want you to be the, 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 the foundation of my house. I want you to be the rock of my house. And yet you have summer homes all over the beach. There's a bunch of sand in your foundation still because there's areas, there's rooms that you let Jesus into and there's rooms that you don't. Jesus says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you either have all of me or you have none of me. Listen, Jesus came to be personal, but he didn't come to be personalized. Somebody missed that. Jesus came to be personal, but he did not come to be personalized. But because we're Americans and we love to personalize things and to make it as, as, as create your own, like build a bear, make your own, make your own savior. No. You know, I remember when I was in high school, one of the shoes that were, that were the in shoes back then uh, were Nike shocks. And, and they were these running shoes with like these springs in the back. And I remember I bought these red ones and, uh, and they were meant for running, but I would always use them for basketball. So for about two years, I rolled my ankle like continually. But I look good though doing it, okay? So, uh, but anyway, so 
But one of the things about Nike Shocks that, that kind of changed the game, if you will, was that when Nike Shocks first came out, you can go on the Nike website and you can customize your shoes. And you can put your name or uh, your birth date. You can put whatever you want. And that's what made Nike Shocks so special because you can customize the shoe. And one of the things about us is that we become so accustomed to personalizing and customizing that we want to customize Christ. And Jesus didn't come to be customized. And Jesus didn't come to be personalized. Jesus didn't come to be named. He came to name you. And if you're going, if you're going to embrace the gospel message, you have to be willing to give up control. He shows up and he says, this is an all or nothing decision. Either you're going to embrace all of me or you get none of me. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines, looking into Christianity, pondering, thinking, is this for me or is it not for me? You, I would pray that you would, but I want you to know that Christianity comes with a cost. Amen. There are costs involved with Christmas. And you must be willing to incur those costs in order to embrace the benefits. Okay? So the first thing we see here in this passage is we see the costs of Christmas. But the second thing that we see here in this passage is we see the benefits of Christmas. And what I would argue is that even though the costs are high, the, benef the benefits are infinitely greater. Okay? Now, in order for you to get an idea of what the benefits are, I want to read to you uh, verse 20 through verse 23. Uh, Look what it says. It says, but after Joseph, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name what? Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Yeah. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what we see in the two titles that Jesus is given, that Jesus came to give us benefits. Even though there are costs involved with Christmas, there are, there are also benefits involved with Christmas. And I remember back in the day when I first came to Christianity and I was reading this passage and I saw that Jesus had all these names and it was Jesus and it was Messiah and it was Christ and it was uh, Emmanuel. And I'm like, what is, is this dude Hispanic? You know what I mean? He's got like 17 names. You know what I mean? It's like Jose Martinez, Rodriguez, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, sounds like one of my cousins. And so I'm like, why does he have so many names? And what I came to realize is that the reason why he has so many names is because each one of those names tell us about what he came to do. Jesus is not just Emmanuel, he's also Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. And what, what I want to show you as we look at the benefits of Christmas, as we take a closer look at the benefits, that the two benefits far outweigh the two costs, okay? And the two benefits are connected to and flow from the two names that are given Jesus. I want to look at each one of them so that as we look at them, you can understand how incredible the benefits of Christmas actually are. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is described as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I don't even have to give you the meaning because Matthew puts it in parentheses. He says, God with us. The word there, with, it means to be joined with someone. It means to be in proximity to someone. So, so, so one of the things that Jesus comes to do based on the name that he's given is he's, he comes to be God with us. The reason why that's a benefit, even though you might not think it is, is because if you truly understand that Jesus is God with us, then it does two things to you. It humbles you and it heals you. It humbles you and it heals you. 
The first thing it does is it humbles you. If you understand that God is with us, it should humble you. You know why it should humble you? I told this story last year, and I'm going to keep telling it every Christmas because it illustrates this concept perfectly. If I was upstairs in my house and I'm working on, on something, right? I'm sending an email or working on my sermon, right? And my two daughters are downstairs making a ruckus and they're fighting or disagreeing or breaking something, right? What I would do is I would give them a warning. I'd say, hey, girls, can you please stop? Right? First warning. Then after a while, they're still hearing noise. I'm like, hey, girls, I'm serious. Can you please stop? I'm serious. They just, they, just, they just completely ignore me, keep doing what they're doing. So I give them a third warning, louder. And more Hispanic. Like I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting real heated now, right? And, and, and still nothing. Listen, if at the fourth time I have to come downstairs, that should not be a moment of pride for my daughters. Because if I have to come downstairs, it means that the problem has gotten so bad that I have to show up and do something about it. Listen, the fact that God is with us means that God had to come down because the problem on earth was so bad. And one of the things that most bothers me about Christmas is that we have the audacity to make Christmas about us. We have the audacity to look at Christmas and say, man, look how great I am. Christmas is not about how great you are. It's about how sinful and broken you are. Okay? Because God, you are so bad. The situation was so bad. God didn't send an angel. God didn't send a messenger. God didn't send an Uber. God had to come down himself because of how messed up you were. It should humble you. If God had to come down, that should humble you. It should break you. Christmas should humble you to the dust if you truly understand what it means. It should humble you. But you know why the other reason why it should humble you is not just because God had to come down. But, but one of the things that Matthew does here, he's a Jew and he's just a great expositor of God's word. One of the things that, that and especially of the Old Testament, one of the, one of the things he does here in order to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, is he quotes, when he says that God is with us, he's actually quoting from a prophet. And he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And the prophet that he's talking about is Isaiah. And in the passage that this, this, this prophecy comes from, Isaiah chapter 7, here's what's happening in that story. There's a king, and his name is King Ahaz, and he's one of the wicked kings of Judah. He's so wicked, in fact, that his dad was already pretty bad, and he takes it to a whole other level. And not only are they not worshiping God, but they're worshiping Molech. So they were children being sacrificed for this pagan god uh, on, on, on altars in front of everybody. He was a terrible, wicked guy. And because of his wickedness, one of the things that God warned him was, hey, if you keep doing what you're doing, I'm going to have to come and punish you. And there's going to be consequences. There's going to be judgment. So right around Isaiah chapter 7, a pagan king shows up sent by God to destroy Judah because of the sin of King Ahaz. So while Ahaz is sitting there figuring out what he's going to do, his city is under siege. Uh, he decides that he's going to call another king, a pagan king, to come help him. And actually, I don't blame him for it because he knew that he had no right to ask anything from God because he had never worshipped God during his reign. In the middle of all that, a prophet shows up at his house and a prophet says to him, listen, God will still deliver you if you come to him. God can still be what you need if you just admit that you need his help. In the middle of that prophecy that the prophet gives him is where you find this verse. So there's a, there's a sin, follow this, follow this. There's a sinful person doing their own sinful thing. The sinful thing brings consequences and God shows up and tries to deliver him. So in this prophecy, what we see is that God was willing to deliver King Ahaz in the short term, but he was ultimately willing to deliver us in the long term. In the middle of this prophecy, we find the prophecy about Jesus. And because a lot of us are just like King Ahaz. 
We are sinful, wicked people who think we can do it by ourselves. Christmas says you can't do it by yourself. And if you let me, I can fix it. The question is, are you willing to let him do it? And so this should humble us, guys. The first thing that God with us should do is it should humble us. But you know what? The next thing it should do, it should also heal us. And here's what I mean by heal. One of the things that happens in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, you have Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and they're with God, and everything is great. Adam and Eve disobey God. God has to remove them from his presence. And ever since that moment, all they tried to do is get away from God's presence, and all God tried to do is get back into their presence. And so God does it through a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke. He does it through a tabernacle. He does it through a temple. To Joseph, he, he does it through a hurricane. I mean, through, to Job, he does it through a hurricane. And ever since Genesis 3, God has been trying to get back in our presence. And so he does it all throughout the Old Testament. But every time he attempts to do it, he freaks people out because he's God and they're not. Okay? If any Old Testament saint, and I'm talking about Moses, Abraham, Job, whoever you want to bring up, if they knew that God would one day come down in the flesh, it would have blown their mind. As a matter of fact, to this day, there are Jewish rabbis and scholars who take this passage, and uh, the one that I'm talking about in Isaiah chapter 7, and they actually don't think that God with us means that God's going to show up. Because in the Jewish mindset, God is so high and holy and above us that there's no way that God can ever come down. And so they think it's a figurative thing, not a literal thing. Jesus shows up and says, no, it's literal. I'm here now. God has landed now. Okay? Man, that, that should heal you when you understand that God is no longer in a tabernacle or at a, in a tabernacle made of tent or a, 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 te a temple made of bricks, but he is in a person made of flesh. God's here now. And listen, listen, if that's true, the reason why that should heal you is because that means that we are not alone. That means that God has not forgotten us. That means that God has not abandoned us. Even though he should have, that means that he has not abandoned us. What that means is that regardless of what you're going through during this Christmas season, God can relate to you. He can relate to you because if you've suffered, if you've been betrayed, if you've been lied to, if you've been lonely, if, if anything you've ever gone through, Jesus went through it too now. Amen. That's why they should heal you. Because in Jesus, you have a God that can relate to you because he's human, but can redeem you because he's God. Come on. So, so, so the, the first benefit of this gospel, the, the, the first beautiful benefit of this gospel is that God is with us. And if God is truly with us, we should be humbled and healed. But then the second benefit of this gospel that I want to look at that's just so important is not only did he come to be Emmanuel, but it says that he also came to be Jesus. Now, that word is important because what I said, and you, kinda, you could tell it if you look at the bottom of your Bible, it usually says it at the bottom of it, the word Jesus means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. Salvation is from Yahweh. That's what the word Jesus means. And that second name is the second benefit that we get when we believe in the gospel. It says that Yahweh saves. So what that means is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he came not just to be a baby in a cradle. He came to be a savior on a cross. Amen. Listen, if all we had was a baby in a cradle, that's half a gospel. We don't need just God with us. We need God for us. 
So Jesus shows up not just to be Emmanuel, be in a cradle, but he shows up to be Jesus, our Savior, and die on a cross. And as a result of that, when you understand that, it changes you. You know why? Because if Jesus is actually the, the, the Savior that he claims to be, if his name actually means Jehovah or Yahweh is saves or Yahweh is Savior, then here's what this means. It means that Jesus Christ is the greater Joseph. Here's what I mean by that. When you look at the story of Joseph, Joseph in many ways saves Mary. And here's why. Remember what I said, the four things that could happen. If you were married or betrothed to someone and they cheated on you, you had four things you can do. The first thing you can do is publicly disgrace them. The second thing you can do is divorce them. The third thing you can do is leave them destitute. And the fourth thing you could do is kill them, death. Okay? So, so, so just think about that. So disgrace, divorce, destitute, death. Those are all the four things that Mary deserved, even though she really didn't deserve them, but he thought she deserved, and he refuses to do them. Well, here's the thing. Everything that Joseph does partially, Jesus shows up and does fully, completely. You see, because when, when Joseph chooses Mary, he is willing to be disgraced. Jesus, when he chooses us, he wasn't willing to be disgraced. He was disgraced. Okay, when, when, when Joseph chooses Mary, he's willing to be destitute. But when, when Jesus chose us, he was destitute. When, 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 when Joseph chooses Mary, he was willing, okay, to, to be killed and, and experience death. When Jesus chose us, he did experience death. And so if Jesus is the greater Joseph, then that means we are the lesser Mary. Because Mary didn't really deserve it, and we actually do. You see, when you, when you understand that, when, when you get that, that Jesus is the greater Joseph, man, that, that, that idea just completely transformed. That's the, that's the greatest benefit we can ever get. It far outweighs any cost that, that, that you might be willing to incur. This is, this is incredible news. And here's what's crazy. The reason, there's, there's also a few more reasons why he's the greater Joseph. He's not only the greater Joseph because of the reasons I just gave you, but he's also the greater Joseph because the Bible says that Joseph was righteous, but we know that he actually couldn't have been because there's only one person that was truly righteous, and that was Jesus, the greater Joseph. But what's crazy is that when Joseph does what he does to Mary, all he really is doing is showing mercy, not grace. There's a difference between mercy and grace. I heard a pastor do, uh, describe this uh, uh, a couple years ago. Here's what he said. He said, imagine someone comes to your house and robs your house, okay? To show them mercy, because mercy is to not give someone something they deserve. That's what mercy is. You deserve this, and I'm not giving it to you. That's mercy. So if someone came to your house and robbed your house, mercy would be, I'm not going to call the cops. I'm not going to press charges, even though that's what you deserve, right? But here's what's crazy about grace. Grace isn't not giving someone what they deserve, which is mercy. Grace is giving something to someone that they don't deserve. So he says, and they're using that same illustration, that mercy would be me not calling the cops. Grace would be me giving you the keys to my house and leaving and giving you the house. Jesus came not to show mercy, but to give grace. And that's why Jesus is the greater Joseph. Can I get an amen? amen? He's the greater Joseph who came to deal with our greatest problem. See, our greatest, going back to King Ahaz, the, 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 the greatest problem wasn't the, the pagan king of Syria. It was his sin. And Jesus came to deal not with our, with our earthly problems, but with our actual spiritual internal, eternal problem. 
He came to deal with the real issue. And he came to do it with real power. Because if, if, if the incarnation is true, I would argue that the hardest part of the gospel to believe is the incarnation. Listen, if someone is willing to admit that Jesus is both God and man, then all the rest of it will fall right in line. But this is the hardest doctrine to believe, that God actually came down. If God actually came down and someone's willing, a skeptic is willing to admit that, then the miracles and the resurrection, all that will make sense. But the incarnation is the hardest part to, to embrace. Right. Because because what it means is he came to deal with our real issue, but he came to do it with real power. He came to do it with real power because he's a human so he can relate, but he's God so he can redeem. And so what we see here is this. When we look at this story, you and I can learn from the mercy of Joseph. But we can live because of the grace of Jesus. I can learn from Joseph's mercy, but I can only live through Jesus' grace. Listen, if all we have is Christmas, if all we have is God with us, not God for us, then we have a cradle, not a cross. Jesus didn't stay an infant. He died as our Savior. And what we see is that in order for us to be joined to Jesus, there is an incredibly high cost that we must pay in order to be joined to Jesus. But what we see is that in order for Jesus to be joined to us, he had to pay an even greater cost. So it costs a lot for you to be joined to Jesus, but it costs him infinitely more to be joined to you. And even though the costs of Christmas are much higher than many of us expected, praise be to God that the benefits of Christmas are infinitely greater than any of us could have ever hoped. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come before you today. And Lord, we just pray that this Christmas would no longer be hidden. I pray that as we look at these well-known passages and these well-known stories that, that we are so quick to, to, to moralize and so quick to make about the Joseph or Mary or the shepherds, these stories are not about those people. These stories are about you. And I pray that you would forgive us for losing sight of that. For, forgive us for making these stories about us, to making these stories about what we do instead of what you've done. Jesus, we thank you that even in your birth, you were already pointing to the cross, that even in the cradle, you were already pointing us to the cross. And that Christmas, I pray that this year, Christmas would no longer be about us or our presence or our families or the people around us, but I pray that Christmas would be about our Savior. Help us, Jesus, I pray. Do your work in us and through us. We thank you again. And we pray all this in your name and all God's people said.